State government. Good morning. This is full disclosure with the Better Government Association, and this is your host Trent R. Nelson. And of course, we hope that you've had a wonderful weekend, a wonderful first week of the new year, 2024. And of course, we have our wonderful friend, President and CEO of the Better Government Association. His name is David Grising, and as always, we are always fortunate to have the ability to talk with him. Good morning, sir. Good morning, Trent. It is a wonderful morning to talk about some of the most pressing matters of not only Sangamon County and Central Illinois, but the entire state of Illinois. And of course, as those listeners of our program know, many of our topics tend to go further than that in some circumstances. So we will begin on what has, in many cases, been the talk of the town, gun registration, ammo registration, all of those necessary innovations that took effect on January 1st of 2024. We know that all of that was going a bit slow in the lead up to January 1st. What can you tell us about those numbers and that movement one week into the new year, sir? Well, I guess they're still going pretty slowly. According to some estimates, fewer than 1% of the people who hold these assault weapons may have registered so far. That's based on some reporting about what some gun dealerships are saying. The Chicago Sun-Times talked to uh, Carpentersville gun shop owner Roger Crawl, who said that he thinks that 80% of their sales are AR-style weapons and that we should have millions and millions of people registered by now if all of them were appropriately registering. And so just right now, we have only about 30,000 people 29,000 as of last count, and about 69,000 weapons as of December 31st, which is the latest count we have. In the state of Illinois, there are, what, 2.5 million firearm owner ID holders. So that shows you that a very, very small number of people who at least are licensed to have guns have registered assault-style weapons with the state. And, of course, we know down here that the Sangamon County Sheriff has noted that there will be no arrests for noncompliance, and many different offices across the state have noted that they are still open for registration out any blowback. But what can we expect the state to eventually do as time goes on and noncompliance remains an issue? Well, first of all, arrests were not really part of the plan. It starts with a misdemeanor and then the penalties can increase from there. I think somebody who is known to hold weapons and hasn't registered them after repeated warnings perhaps might be subject to arrest on some sort of contempt citation. But what I think we'll see probably is either a scofflaw situation in which we have hundreds of thousands or millions of firearm owners who just don't register their weapons, or eventually things will catch on and maybe when their FOID comes up for renewal or something, they think they ought to get right with the government. But I I think it was always known that this law enforcement would be challenging. 
the bigger part of the assault weapons ban has to do with sales of guns, and that is its biggest impact. And it may be that the state is just dealing with the scofflaw problem going on, which is not healthy in a law-abiding society. Certainly not healthy in a law-abiding society at all, sir. And again, fascinating information. Of course, if the different county sheriffs across the state were arresting everyone for non-compliance, we would need to start turning the houses into jails. So it is useful that they're not doing that. However, as you noted, sir, how this all catches up, how it all reconciles itself is right now anyone's guess. But as we talk about the new assault weapons law and all of the nuances of that, let us transition, sir, if we could, to something quite disturbing. The rise in hate crimes across the state of Illinois, across the state that prides itself as being home to Abraham Lincoln. What can you tell us and our listeners about this despicable rise in crimes against specific groups of individuals? Right. The number of hate crimes is up 319 total hate crimes last year. We've seen increases in certain categories, in particular race, ethnicity, and ancestry. We had 190 reported hate crimes in 2022. These are the most recent data that we have, not 2023. But in 2021, there were 70 such crimes. So that's about one, the number nearly tripled from 2021 until 2022. And the number in 2020 was only 38. So that shows you the steep increase in race-based hate crimes. We've also seen a substantial increase in the number of crimes against people based on LGBTQ identification. 75 of those happened in 2022. And likewise, we've seen a a large number of religious-based hate crimes, 68 in 2022. Uh, Given the way that rhetoric has uh, intensified over the last year or so, one might expect that these problems perhaps are getting worse, especially when it comes to hate crimes. With the war in Israel and Israel's response uh, of heavy bombing to the people in, in Gaza uh, in their effort to wipe out Hamas, uh, we've seen a significant increase in um, very charged rhetoric on college campuses, certainly, and across, uh, across the country and apparently in this state as well. Absolutely. We hear it all the time. We read reports about it. We do stories concerning it very frequently, unfortunately. And, sir, you mentioned that from 2020 to when we currently have information concerning that it has just been a remarkable rise. What can, as we know, that the Israeli-Hamas war is relatively new What can we perhaps look back upon 2020 and before and say, this might have something to do with what we're still dealing with right now? Well, we certainly know some of these prejudices existed back in 2020. What has changed, I think, since then is the nature of political rhetoric has become much more polarized. And and even we have members of the Supreme Court, even in the Dobbs ruling, Justice Clarence Thomas issued a, a, uh, an opinion in, in which he talked about going after gay marriage, for example, that he felt that some of the same thinking that applied to wiping out the right to abortion might apply to court sanction of gay marriage. So that kind of rhetoric 
does tend to feed into a more polarized political discourse in this country. And certainly the presidential campaign is giving rise to heightened polarization and in some instances, possibly discrimination. Horrifying stuff. So we watch it. It's like a roller coaster after every election. It seems as though perhaps fires of a passion die for a second and then they spark back up as bright and vivid as ever. And we have more to get to concerning a bevy of other topics, a Franklin City Juvenile Detention Center closing, and so much more. Hang out for a second. We'll be right back on Full Disclosure with the Better Government Association. This is your host, Trent R. Nelson. Shining a light on Illinois state government, this is Full Disclosure with the Better Government Association. This is your host, Trent R. Nelson, and of course we are joined, as we always are, by our wonderful friend, president, and CEO of the Better Government Association, David Grising. We spoke before our last commercial break about the uptake concerning gun registration for the new assault weapons law, as well as the rise of hate crimes across the state and perhaps why we're seeing it now. But we have a few more topics to get to with Mr. Grising. The first being that the Franklin City Juvenile Detention Center was closed due to a failure to comply with various standards. Could you tell us more about that piece of news, which we've previously covered on WMAY? Well, this has been a running problem. Uh, There was an audit at the Benton, Illinois facility in southern Illinois, not far from Carbondale, a couple of years ago that brought up all kinds of problems in terms of the staff's care for people held in residence there, in particular putting them in isolation rooms, restraining them inappropriately, et cetera. And some additional funding was made available and reforms, uh, we were told, were put into effect. But some recent, more recent reporting, both by Capital News Illinois, as well as some oversight activity focused on that facility, has led a judge to say this facility remains in crisis. And frankly, the efforts to clean it up are not working. Some of those efforts include that the county has made additional uh, funds available. These facilities, these juvenile detention facilities, are run by the counties. The county board in Franklin County approved a $200,000 increase for upgrades, raised salaries from $28,000 to $43,000. But an audit conducted last January just found that there were still significant problems and that the same health and safety of residents was at risk. And finally, this judge has just said enough already. Let's shut it down. And Franklin City Juvenile Detention Center, the story that you hear concerning it that you just elucidated us regarding, it feels awfully similar to to some of the stories that we've read and heard concerning Choate mental health facility. What, sir, in your mind, what what can we trace uh, the way that we're treating juveniles and those with mental health issues? Why are we treating them in these ways which do not seem to meet the standards of our society? Well, first of all, I think it is important to note differences, too. Choate is a facility for people with mental health and, and developmental disabilities. A juvenile detention facility is something different. Sure. But the comparison you're making, Trent, is valid in the sense that these are people who have really nobody advocated, you know, very few people advocating for them who are very vulnerable to mistreatment by 
staff. The Choate case has a documented record of more extreme conduct toward these people. Some of the testimony that is coming out in some lawsuits and, and others have made clear that there's something worse than just negligence and inappropriate behavior. There's some allegedly violent behavior towards residents at Choate, and I'm not aware that that, that has been charged in the Franklin County case. Absolutely. But the bigger issue that you're putting your finger on is people such as you know youth who are held in the criminal court system who are sent to juvenile detention centers, they need a lot of help in a lot of different ways. One of them is they need to be protected. They need to have their rights protected just like anybody else would. And it's, it's evident that that has not been happening in this particular instance. Absolutely. And of course, thank you so much for clarifying those differences, which are, are very clear and do exist. But as you noted, sir, it, it comes down to what are we doing to ensure that those within the care of the state are being taken care of and, and helped and, and rehabilitated and all the different means and ways in which they might require it. It is always difficult to hear of issues concerning the state and those that are its wards, for after all, we must consider that when we find individuals in these locations, being in those facilities are often mandated. And again, we might consider some of those things to be punishments, um, sometimes assistance, but treatment within those facilities should not dehumanize those within it. And I think that is all anyone wants to see. Again, gripping stuff, we will be sure to keep discussing this with you as it's surely far from over. And speaking of which, We'll move on to another topic that is far from over, um, but that we could spend hours discussing with you. Uh, Let us talk about the migrant circumstance across the state of Illinois. We know that Chicago Mayor Brandon Johnson met with a congressional delegation last Friday. What can you tell us about what the plans are moving forward, if any? Well, as we've discussed, uh, the huge problem of migrants coming to Chicago sent via Uh, Governor Greg Abbott of Texas from the Texas border has still not nowhere close to being resolved. And uh, Mayor Johnson and Governor Pritzker both have sought out assistance from the federal government, first of all, to get work visas for these asylum seekers so that they can get jobs and, and start taking care of themselves. That's one big issue. The other is for financial help because of the large cost of caring for these people. And that was we're Based on reporting about the meeting that happened on Friday, funding and work permits were the big focus. This was a group of people, congressional delegation from Illinois, that certainly would like to be helpful. But the trouble is that the help needs to come either at the Texas border from Governor Abbott holding off on shipments on buses being sent here, which he has shown no disposition to do. Or the help needs to come from the Biden administration, which maybe might help find federal facilities that could house some of the people, might make funds available, might, in fact, expedite work permits, none of which has happened so far for inexplicable reasons. But the meeting on Friday was Governor was Mayor Johnson's latest effort to put out a siren and get the federal government involved because state and local resources are getting overwhelmed by the number of people who continue to arrive and need help, especially as the 
winter intensifies over the next number of weeks. Absolutely. Governor Abbott of Texas has, as you noted, no disposition to help accommodate states like Illinois or New York, which we've mentioned on this program before. Mayor Eric Adams and New York, they have recently undertaken a bit of legal action designed to hopefully stem that tide themselves. It will be interesting to see what the state of Illinois, Chicago's mayor, as well as the state's governor, Governor Pritzker, decide to do. As you noted, though, sir, it remains inexplicable that the federal government has not really said or done more concerning this as it surely meets the standards of interstate transportation and commerce in so many ways, no? Well, certainly the buses would be engaged in interstate commerce, right? They are being paid to take people from Texas to Illinois. If there's a will for the federal government to get, a, get involved, <laughs> they'll find a way. Uh, the will so far has been lacking. Well, uh, true words have hardly ever been spoken, sir. If there's a will, there's a way, and there seems to be no will so far, and hence no way Schopenhauer might have something to say about that as well. And before we let you go, sir, we have one more bit of news to discuss. And it's one that, again, as with so many of the others, we have spoken about here on WMAY previously. But this time, the news is a bit of a twist, sir. What can you tell us about how the United States Census in 2020 might have sold Illinois a bit short something that representatives have said previously, and now Governor Pritzker seems to have been proven correctly. Right. The latest news is that the census undercounted Illinois by nearly 50,000 people. That's because they did not carefully enough count the number of people in group living facilities. And they now have the census department has now acknowledged that error and the numbers ultimately will be corrected. This is more than just a nose counting exercise. The big impact from census undercount has to do with the way federal funds flow and even potentially does have an impact on representation in Congress. This error is not enough to have affected the fact that Illinois lost a seat in the House in the last count. We are now represented by 17 legislators instead of 18 previously. But nevertheless, 46,400 people is a, a large number. And when census numbers are corrected again around next year is when we would expect to see federal funding be based on that number. Massive, as you noted, not simply uh, nose counting or head counting. Uh, there are real circumstances that change as a result of the miscounting in one direction or another. And so while we're glad that it is being straightened out, of course, it is a shame that it had the effects that it did for the time that it has. Sir, we come back next week and talk to us more about all of the positive and negative innovations across the great state of Illinois. I'll be here. I'll be looking forward to uh, doing all that with you next week, Trent. Thanks very much. Absolutely. And, sir, before we let you go, could you tell our wonderful listeners where they can read more of the stories that you guys cover? Yeah. Our news website is IllinoisAnswers.org. And BGA also will be very active when the legislature opens next week. And our BGA policy work 
is published on BetterGov.org. You heard it here first, folks. There are a plethora of ways to gain knowledge from the Better Government Association and President and CEO David Greising. He just mentioned two of them. This is a third. And again, thank you so much for your time, sir. And we look forward to catching up with you next week. You too. And look forward to it. Thanks very much. Absolutely. Shining a light on Illinois state government. This is Full Disclosure with the Better Government Association. This is your host, Trent R. Nelson. We just had the pleasure of speaking with President and CEO David Greising of the Better Government Association. And you know what we say around here. Keep on a yearning for the learning. And we'll catch you real soon next week. Not at our standard time. A day after, enjoy Martin Luther King Jr. Day and enjoy the rest of your week, too.